Thank you for your in our lives. Thank you that you love us enough to bother with us. And Lord, we receive the ministry of your word today. Would you implant it deep into our hearts? We receive it with humility and meekness. We want to be taught by your word. We want to be changed by your word. So we stand before you, Lord, in humility to say it is inspired and it is able to do a deep work in our lives. And that's what we, we ask for and we receive by faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Sorry to have to cut you off. I think our sharing can be really good. But the praying this morning was very important too. Just not enough time, right? We need to get here like about six and then, then we'd have a lot of time together. So I want to welcome all of you that are here for the first time. I think John and Kathy are here for the first time. Good to have you all with us. And Glenna, who is your friend? This is Keith Taylor. Hey, Keith Taylor. Good to have you with us. Welcome. Anybody else here for the first time? No? Okay. Great. So I hope you're all in Hebrews 12. Let's start in verse 1. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So we're surrounded by men and women of faith that were mentioned in the previous chapter, Hebrews 11. They were committed to God despite very difficult circumstances. And, and actually, it's not that they are spectators watching us from heaven. It's really that their lives are a witness to us because they endured faithfully. You know, the word witness means to be a witness or to be a martyr. A lot of them were martyrs. And so they are a witness to us of their faithfulness. They ran their race, and their testimony stir us to win our race victoriously too. Our Christian life is often likened to a race. We see Paul mentioning it twice. 1 Corinthians 9.24, he said, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And in 2 Timothy 4, 7, he said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept my faith. So for us to have that same testimony, we need to reject or throw off every weight that holds us back or that trips us up. So he speaks specifically of weights and sins. So first, let's talk about weights. Weights keep us from running our best. You know, uh, marathon runners will run in their lightest clothes, and they won't even eat much. They don't want weight inside. They don't want weight on the outside. They're slender, sleek, so that they can run quickly and hard and fast, and nothing will, will slow them down. Well, that's what he's, he's saying that we need to do, throw off every weight. And they may not be sinful things as such, but it's too much of something that takes our time, takes our attention, distracts us from running our race with Jesus right before us. So here's some things that could be too many interests and hobbies, excessive entertainment or pleasure, too many things to clean, fix, or maintain, unhealed wounds in our soul that drain us of strength and energy that keep us looking down and inward instead of outward, shame that that accumulates or that we haven't dealt with at the cross, that we haven't allowed the blood of Jesus to be enough for. Too many friends to keep up with. You know, Proverbs 18.24 speaks to that. 
In many of our versions, it says, a man who has friends must show himself friendly, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. But the literal in Hebrew says, a man of many friends comes to ruin. And it's possible to have too many friends, try to keep up with too many people, and then you feel guilty because you can't, and then you don't have enough time with the Lord because you're racing around trying to take care of all your people. We all know what that's like. So the enemy will attack our focus if he can't derail our faith. And he attacks our focus with a lot of things that we get ourselves caught up in. We need to make sure nothing hinders or distracts our relationship with Jesus in our pursuit of him. And so I suggest that you make some time to ask the Lord if there's anything in your life that you need to prune back. Even this morning, as I checked email early, there was an article on decluttering, and it was saying spring cleaning, get rid of all the extra clutter. You know, we have inner clutter, we have outer clutter, we have people clutter. We need to deal sometimes with the extra clutter and streamline our lives so that we can run our race without distraction. Author Graham Cook wrote this, Eternity is too important to risk for the sake of some temporal thing that ultimately won't matter. How you live matters. How you spend your time matters. How you serve the Lord matters. He's keeping records. One day we will all give an account. May you live your life from this day forward in the light of eternity. What if the focus of this life was simply to prepare for the next life? What if? Let's go to Colossians chapter 3. Those are some of the weights we need to put off. The Lord may bring others to your mind as you seek him on that. Um, now we're going to speak a little bit about the sins that ensnare us that we need to also put off and die to. And Colossians 3 covers a number of them. But we're going to start in verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. He says, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So that's the life to come that we are living for. Therefore, verse 5, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you also once walked when you lived in them. But now you must also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you've put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So he says we're to put off and put to death all these areas of sin. He names more blatant sin that even the world would call sin in some cultures. <laughs> That's changing, unfortunately. And then he gets to more sins of the heart, sins of the flesh, carnal things that we need to put off. And any re relational unrighteousness we need to repent of. We need to turn from that. These aren't suggestions. These are commands. 
we need to change. We need to put off every sin that ensnares us. And then we're to put on the new man in Christ. We don't just put off the bad. We put on the good. We put on relational righteousness. And we read some of that in verses 12 through 14. So let's read that now. He says, Therefore, as the elect of God, which is all of us, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, bear with one another and forgive one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. So we put off the old man, we put on the new man. And now let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. Again, back to Hebrews 12, and let's look at verse 2. Looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. Let's stop right there. So we look away from everything. This phrase, looking unto Jesus, Reuben mentioned it last week. It's looking away from everything that distracts us so that we can put all of our attention on the one thing. That's what the, the Greek phrase means. So we look away from everything else to look at the one who is the origin of our faith, originator of it, the one who brings it to maturity and completion. We're to give Jesus our undivided attention. Remember growing up uh, with my mother, she didn't just say, listen to me. She would say, listen to me with your eyes. Remember that? Give me your undivided attention. So that means we also, not only do we only look at Jesus, we also don't look at other contestants in our race. We don't look at each other to compare ourselves with each other. We don't compete with each other. If we start comparing ourselves and competing, even in our minds and in our hearts, it'll set us up for pride and arrogance because we'll think we're doing better than others, or it'll set us up for shame and discouragement because we think we're not doing as good as some others are. Paul says, the foolish compared themselves with each other. Remember when in John 21, when Jesus said to Peter, the day's going to come when men are going to take you somewhere you don't want to go. They're going to gird you and stretch out your arms and take you. And he's speaking of his death. And Peter right away said, yeah, but what about this man? What about John? And I think sometimes that's common for us. Yeah, I'm going through this trial. How come no one else is? What about so-and-so? What about what they're going through? We can't, we can't make these comparisons and competitions in the body of Christ. Okay, we're all running our race. And the best way really to view it is not just that you're running your race, but that there's a relay race. And we're all in this together. We help each other. We pass the baton to one another. And we all help each other win. Because if one loses, in a way, we've all lost. And if one wins, in a way, we've all won. Remember that old book we all had to read in high school? Don't ask for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. You know, we're all in this together. Let's help each other win. Let's pray for each other. Let's support each other. Let's encourage each other. Okay, that is good. Thanks, Joanne. All right, let's carry on in verse 2. So we're looking unto Jesus, who for the joy who was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Jesus knew the cross was before him, but he kept walking resolutely toward it. Remember, when, at one point he said to the disciples, let's go to Jerusalem. And they said to him, but Lord, they want to kill you there. And he said, that's right, let's go. You know, he wasn't afraid of the shame, the humiliation, and the pain that he was going to be enduring soon. He endured the cross. It's the Greek word for to endure is hupomeno. And it means to hold one's ground in conflict, to bear up under adversity, to hold out under stress, to stand firm and persevere under pressure. It's not mere patience. It is active, energetic resistance to defeat. That's how Jesus endured his cross. And that's the same word in verse 1 when it says, let's run with endurance the race before us. So as we run our race with hupomeno, we hold our ground in conflict. We bear up under adversity. We hold out under stress. We stand firm and persevere under pressure. We actively resist defeat so that we can finish our race with joy and with victory. Verse 3, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. So as we view our Lord's terrible suffering, our pain comes into perspective. We haven't faced hostility as he did. We haven't avoided sin to the point of bloodshed. We haven't dripped blood in deep agony and distress of soul like Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. We have not shed our blood as martyrs. Our trials are hard for us, but they pale in comparison to what Jesus endured. And that's what the writer is saying here. You think you're going through a hard time. You're dealing with sin. You're, you're dealing with weights. You're trying to run your race. You're trying to stay faith, faithful. But, but don't think it's really hard. Compare yourself with Jesus. You haven't endured like he has. And then the author goes on to say, we've forgotten the discipline of God, that God disciplines those he loves. Look in verse 5 and 6. You have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chasing of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. The rebukes of the Lord are verbal corrections. They're either written or spoken. The, chasti the chastisement or the chastening of the Lord are nonverbal corrections. Those are negative circumstances. And when we endure chastening, we need to respond to it, not ignore it, not disregard it, or despise it. And sometimes we're not even sure it's the chasing of the Lord. We go through a hard trial and we, we don't know. Is it a trial the enemy's thrown at us? Is it a test God's putting us through? Or is it the chastening of the Lord to bring us back into the race in alignment as we should be? And sometimes we need to get on our face before the Lord and say, why am I going through this? Please tell me what this trial is about. Is there something you want to teach me in it? Is there some alignment you want to bring in my life? Or are you just looking to see if I'll be faithful through it? Or do I need to rebuke the enemy and stand strong against this because he has brought it against me? 
Now we need to submit ourselves under the hand of God first. This is what it says in James 4. First submit yourself under the mighty hand of God. Then resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Sometimes we're resisting and rebuking the trials that come our way when actually God brought them. It's the mighty hand of God that's upon us. And that's a, a place of spiritual maturity that we need to grow into. And I'm glad I'm speaking to a mature audience here because you're already there. Or you can ask the Lord every time you walk through a hard time and just say, Lord, what's the origin of this? What are you getting at in my life? Do I resist the devil? Do I thank you and stand tall in faith? Do I submit unto your hand in some area of my life where I've been out of submission? Lord, what are you saying? Clear my ears so I can hear clearly. There are four possible reasons why the church has forgotten the truth of God's chastening. See, he says clearly, you have forgotten the exhortation about chastisement. So here's the first one. We don't know God's judicial decisions and actions that he takes in accordance with his decisions. We don't understand the judgment of the Lord. And it says that in Jeremiah 8, verse 7. He says, my people do not know the judgments of the Lord. And according to 1 Corinthians 11.32, chastening is one way the Lord's judgment is expressed. And we don't always recognize it. We don't always know it. But I believe he wants us to. Number two, we don't want a chastening God. We don't appreciate that aspect of his parenthood. We want his love. We want his forgiveness. We want his guidance. But we don't want to be disciplined by him. We don't believe God should discipline us. And then three, we don't think we need it. Somehow we unconsciously think we're better than Job, Joseph, Jacob, Jonah, even Jesus. says in Hebrews, earlier in Hebrews, that he learned by what he suffered. They needed discipline and training, but we don't. We uh, need to remember, though, that we're called to holiness, and we need discipline in order to live holy lives. And then four, we struggle to reconcile chastening with goodness. For a good God to allow or even orchestrate hardships in our lives seems contradictory. But we need to know that God never denies any attribute of his character in order to express another attribute of his character. For example, he does not set aside his mercy in order to exercise judgment. There's still mercy in the midst of judgment. He doesn't compromise his truth to exercise his grace. He doesn't suspend his love to exercise his wrath. He always embodies the fullness of every attribute he has. So trials never appear good to us, but God is good every time he chastens. His discipline and his goodness are not mutually exclusive. They are exercised simultaneously. When he disciplines, he does not violate his goodness. He expresses it. God is such a loving father that he refuses to avoid chastening. Let's read verses 7 through 11. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us. We paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? 
For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Brothers and sisters, let's be trained by the discipline of the Lord. Let's don't go through something and fail whatever he's trying to train us in where we have to go around that mountain one more time. Let's not face the test, the same test, over and over. Let's learn from it. Let's move on. Let's grow into righteousness and holiness. So God's chastening will produce righteousness if we allow it to. His discipline at the time doesn't feel like a blessing. It's a trial. Like the cross for Jesus wasn't a blessing. It was terrible with anguish and agony, but because he endured it, he found the joy that was set before him that we read about in verse 2. We need to remember that the truth of chastening is part of who God is. God will intensify his discipline in his church in the last days in order to gain the wholehearted devotion of his people. We are in the last days now. So let me say that again, because we are in a season where God will be increasing his discipline in order to bring us into a place of holiness where we are the pure and spotless bride that Jesus is coming back for. So here's that sentence again. God is going to intensify his discipline in his church in the last days in order to gain the wholehearted devotion of his people. What's one way to avoid discipline? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Live that way and you can avoid some of the discipline. Revelation 3.19, Jesus said, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. He didn't just say, and so repent. He said, be zealous. Be passionate about your repentance. God brings judgment to the church first. And then to sinners. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 4 and read that. 1 Peter 4. I'm going to read verses 17 through 19. 1 Peter 4, 17. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where would the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. If you're suffering, the Lord is doing good. He's a faithful creator. If God does not discipline us, then we will be too mature and shallow to partner with his end-time purposes. Our chastening is our training ground. We need to understand and appreciate the kindness and necessity of God's correction. The Lord chastens us for our good so that we can share his holiness. Graham Cook says, to finish our race well with joy, we will need to embrace our challenges as opportunities that will strengthen us to make it to the end. So while we're being chastened, God isn't just trying to perfect our faith. 
His goal is to perfect us in every area of our lives so that we come through the suffering perfect and complete. And the way to endure his discipline is to hear and cling to every word that proceeds from his mouth. Know the word of God. Know the written word. Know the voice of God. Be able to hear his voice. That's how we're going to get through seasons of chastening. For those who have no theological grid for understanding God's chastening, they are at risk of falling away from the faith when the suffering comes. The Bible predicts a great falling away at the end of the age in 2 Thessalonians 2 and in Matthew 24. So we need to understand and remember the chastening of the Lord, that this is part of who he is. Verse 12, back in Hebrews, sorry, let's go back to Hebrews 12, and we're going to go to verse 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. He's speaking about those that might falter because of the discipline or chastening that they're in. He says, because of that, because discipline will result in righteousness, encourage those who are struggling, strengthen those whose faith is weak, who don't understand God's ways. And then in verse 13, he says, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed, which means set an example for those who will be encouraged by you because you have straight paths for your own feet. You are setting an example for those who are wavering so that they won't falter. And notice the word rather. We're going to wrap up with this. In verse 13, it says, but rather be healed. That word is malon in Greek. And it's translated in the New Testament as better, much more, or rather, and it means to be preferred over. God values the brokenness and character development that he sees in us as a result of chastening, but he prefers our healing even more. We need to know this because this is our good father we're talking about. He values the good that comes from our trials, but Malone, even more than that, he wants our deliverance. God values your chastening, but he prefers, Malone, your healing because he loves you. Because he loves me. He wants our healing. He wants our wholeness. He wants our perfection. He wants us to share his glory. He wants to share all of his treasures in heaven with us. And so that's why in his love, he allows us to go through trials or to be chastened. Hebrews 12 comes right after Hebrews 11 to show us that there are no contradictions between living by faith in Hebrews 11 and enduring the chastening of the Lord in Hebrews 12. It's all a walk of faith, like obeying his voice like Noah did and embracing changes and challenges like Abraham or living obediently like Moses or enduring hardships and suffering like those who refuse deliverance in order to stay faithful. Faith endures through it all. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, please search us and see if there is any wicked way in us. Show us where we have neglected eternal things and live for what is temporary. Show us the weights and sins that have ensnared us and keep us from victoriously running our race. Help us to repent and to trim things back. Lord, help us to live in light of the judgment seat of Christ. 
And when we experience discipline in your chastening, help us to remember your love and goodness behind it. May we be quick to repent. May we be fully trained in righteousness. May we reflect you as we live by faith in both good times and in hard times. In Jesus' name, amen.